but at least as for this week, we're still talking about common misconceptions, and I want to continue at least finishing up some of the, the biblical bits of wisdom that everybody knows are in the Bible. But apparently, and it worked out last, last week rather nicely, that, that, that I was afraid that everybody would know which ones were from the Bible and which ones weren't automatically. And it was interesting that people kind of psych themselves out as to whether something was in the Bible or not. For instance... Well, from the week before that every answer was no. I know, it messes with you. So this one, true or false, the phrase, out of the mouths of babes is biblical. Is that in the Bible? There's the self-aid reference. Yeah. That's right in there, self-aid. I'll just put it up there. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how excellent. Good job, Randy. This is why he's an elder. How excellent is thy name in all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies. And thou mightest still uh, and thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. So yeah, out of the mouths of babes, straight out of scripture. Now, um, and this is what Jesus quoted had the triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem. Absolutely. What's David's point here? What's he saying? How would you summarize what Psalm 8 is getting at here? That's a good question. Alright. The key part of trying to understand this is when he, once he starts saying, because. So what what's he getting at here? I know it's King James, but that's the one where you get mouths of babes. Is it kind of um, that, um, you know, the babes are, um, don't have much guilt, and uh, <clears throat> so they, um, that's where he gets his strength because Jesus said become like children. That's where he gets his strength because when we get old, we sin. Well, and I think I think there's an argument for that because so he's linking another chunk from what Jesus is saying about uh, you, you have to you have to accept the kingdom like a child would with that sort of simplicity. I don't know about not a lot of guilt, but at least at least a simplicity of faith. You know, with this idea of I'm I'm going to come at this and go, okay, yeah, totally, yeah, I buy this. Um, and I do think that there's an absolute application. I think that's exactly some of the, some of what. Jesus is getting at what's David getting at here? Because I don't, I don't think that I, I, I think you're absolutely right. But what's what's David's point here ultimately? God said His glory above the heavens, and that's awesome. And He ordains praise. He calls for praise from even the simplest, nothingest kind of. I mean, not like despised, but that's like least complicated people on the planet. What does that do? Why? Okay. Because of his enemies, in order to quiet the enemy and the avenger, he makes these people speak truth. I've never really thought about that. Okay, but it's it's interesting. That he's just like I'm, I'm. I'm calling this forth from the simplest of people. I'm. I'm calling it from the from the shepherds. I'm calling it from from the wise men, right? Well, yeah, but from shepherds, from even the simplest kinds of things. People might sit there and say, "Oh, this this great man believes this way, and this great man believes this way." God says, "You know what? I, I'm using the the wisdom of the foolish to confound the wise. I'm using." I could make these rocks speak if I needed to. I could make that donkey speak if I needed to, too. You can't just say, well, we've got dueling wise people. God's saying, no, at its core, this is truth that is understood even by the simplest of minds. Which is interesting, because how do most people usually use the term out of the mouths of babes today? Well, they say the darndest things, but... I always took it though that out of the mouth of Abe's boy, that was, uh, they put it the right way. And that was, that was truth. And I think that's kind of what the right thing is. That was truth. But why do I, I agree. But why do I say 
out of the mouths of babes to say that. What? Because they're not expecting it? Because they're not expecting it, because you're sitting there going, um, who would have thought these guys would, boy, even these guys get it. Which is technically the way David is getting it, except that we tend to bring it as, like, uh, how ironic it is that even infants would know this, or even children would know this. How, how, I, I, we tend to focus on the childness, as opposed to on the truth that they are bringing forth. And so, we, even people who have no idea that what they're saying is biblical, are focusing on it going, yeah, wow. It's just so funny that a kid would get this. And whereas God is getting it, and I think even Jesus was focusing on this in, 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 in when he's talking about uh, accepting the child, uh, accepting the kingdom as a child would accept it, but saying, I'm not really focusing on the child part of this. I'm focusing on um, the, the amazing truth that I'm trying to point to with this. So yes, this is biblical, but let's make sure that we understand where it's coming from biblically. Okay, like I said last week, there's a whole bunch of different things that are commonly misattributed to Scripture, so we want to keep trying to go through and say, well, which of these are actually biblical or not? And even then, we talked about last week, when we say biblical, do we mean it is literally from the Bible, it is reflecting the Bible, it is, what do we mean? So, yes or no, God helps those who help themselves. Tossing an easy one to you guys to begin with. No, 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 no. Earliest recording saying uh, version of this is from Aesop's fable, Hercules and the Wagoner, where a man's wagon gets stuck in a muddy road. He prays for Hercules to help. Hercules, please help me. And Hercules gets down and goes, "Okay, I'll help you. Put your shoulder to it and fix your wagon. You know, you you should do this. Don't just stand there and looking at something that's broken and want the gods to do it. The moral that." But the Aesop gave us that gods help those who help themselves. You start by doing this. So, you know, maybe not the best aphorism for Christians. You know, the gods are going and doing, telling you to do it. It was first brought into English and then Christianized, they dropped the S off the end of gods, by British politician Algernon Sidney in his 1680 book, Discourses Concerning Government. God helps those who helps themselves, quoting Aesop, it's popularized by Ben Franklin in 1757 in Poor Richard's Almanac. That's where most people heard it, because amazingly most people didn't read, you know, Algernon Sidney's political book. Same book that we get saying, such as, three may keep a secret if two of them are dead, and <laughs> the way to see by faith is to shut the eye of reason. Franklin had an interesting take on things. How might a deist like Franklin apply this. Why did Franklin go, oh, yeah, totally. God helps those who help themselves. Remember what we talked about with deists? Who are the deists? People that believe God created the world and let it go. Pretty much let it go. So, of course, the only, the only way anybody's going to get help is by doing it themselves because that God is... <laughs> and, and as we talked about in history class, Franklin was a lot more religious than a lot of people give him credit for, but his kind of religion was that God is up in heaven, standing off. Uh, about a month ago, somebody said, somebody loaned me a book <clears throat> saying, we Protestants really don't understand this, that only the Catholics understand that God is, is really present with us. Protestants are forever thinking that God is up in heaven somewhere. And I'm like, I really don't think that's a Catholic-Protestant thing. I don't think you can say Catholics feel really close to God where Protestants feel different about that. I, I don't know that it's that. And yet... I'm amazed. Even this week, I was talking to somebody, and they were talking about, well, and even at the um, uh, the outreach, one of the speakers was talking about that God, that people think of God as up there in heaven somewhere. I was talking to somebody at the end of the week where they were talking about uh, feeling that God is really distant, but then again, I, got, I guess he's got a lot of things on his mind, and he's doing a lot of other stuff. And I'm like, how on earth do we, even after, even after having the Bible in our language, for centuries, even after people growing up in church, how can we still tend to think, well, God's way up there, away from me. I guess I've got this on my own. I don't want to bother God. The risk of sounding, at the risk of sounding political. Our president has gone on record as saying, no, I don't pray. I don't want to bother God. I can do this myself. No, I never pray for forgiveness. I just try to fix it myself. That's what we do. That's what good Christians do, right? Just do it yourself. Don't pray. Don't bother God. Isn't that what we 
do? Then why do people, people keep saying it that way? Some people do. They why should do they shouldn't? But why do we keep saying it that way then? Why did we? Why did people hear uh, a, a major figure? I'm not just going to toss Trump there, but why do people hear somebody like that and go, "Well, that's good. He's kind of self-made. He's kind of doing his own thing." That's you know we should own our own. Why do we? Why do we still think like this? How so? You're having to do more. How's it easier? Yeah, but it's, you're doing it. You're not just trusting in this otherworldly being to take care of you as much. It's just like, well, I know that I can or cannot do it. It's up to me, and I'll do it. Okay. It's easier to let yourself have that control. Mm-hmm. We think we respect a person who holds himself up in the bootstraps. Oh, that's a self made That's American. Okay. What are we going to say, Gary? It gives us control. It's a sense of control. It doesn't judge others. Oh, I am amazed at how many people are like, "Oh, I am no respecter of persons." Uh, no, I, I, I only trust God. I, I know people are messed up and everything. In fact, you know, like, like David was saying the other day. You know, David in his ministry, he's, he's got two thousand people in his church. He's written seven books. He's amazing. I totally trust him. He is so humble. And you go, okay, you're, you're doing exactly the opposite of what you just said. You're actually, now you're actually throwing yourself into respecting persons, even as you start to quote Pastor David and his great humility about how we shouldn't respect persons and things. No, we love that. We love to be able to look at people and say, look what they've accomplished. That's what I want to do. I want to accomplish. Well, and I think like what Gary said, conversely, we look at people that aren't doing that, and we tend to take that easy route of getting frustrated or pushing them aside, not really understanding or taking that time to understand why they are where they are and, and letting that be. What? Okay, I had shown you this graphic to begin with that cites Psalm 94, 17 through 19. What does Psalm 94, 17 through 19 say? First person to get there. Everybody sprints to their Bibles. Psalm 94, 17 through 19. Unless the Lord has given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. But I said, my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. When your anxiety was great, when anxiety was great, would it be your consolation, my joy to receive? Would you agree that with my man C.H. Spurgeon that ultimately God helps those who cannot? Help themselves. It's kind of the whole point in that in Psalm, isn't it? That we can't help, can't help ourselves. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Would you agree with with C. H. Burton that ultimately God helps those who cannot help themselves? Yes. What are we going to say, Jenny? I don't think that's what this Okay. 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 Fair enough. The 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 psalm is ultimately saying, "You helped me. The ground I was standing on was crumbling beneath me." I suppose we could go to Isaiah and look at things like, "All of our righteousness are but filthy rags." We could go to various places in Scripture, but I don't know. Find me some Calvinists. Is there anything in Scripture that suggests that maybe we can't do this on our own? That maybe we, we, it's not just that we're wise to search for God's help, but that we absolutely, absolutely need God's help. Well, that's the sermon, so don't go there. <laughs> Spoilers. So look it up, yeah. Anything else? Well, that's yeah. If you're um, Speaking of salvation for the Calvinist, mm-hmm. yes, we cannot do it. It's, it is grace alone, and he chooses us. Now, if you're talking about, um, am I going to get better? You know, you know, are you going to depend on the doctors? You're going to go to the hospital, etc. Are you depending on yourself to do that, not for God to heal you? It's a little... Uh, 
And so if the doctors can't do it, if nothing else can do it, then I guess God does, if he does heal you, he's doing it that well, and, and it, part of that, I don't want to get into the whole natural theology thing, but I mean, part of that is like, how far do you want to take that? Is it that even even the healing that God has built into our systems, that's that's God doing that, ultimately. But even, I would sit there and even go back to people who say, yeah, but I can be a better person if I can just work on this myself. I can improve myself. I'd be like, no, you can't. You're not going to be, if you try to build... If you try to build a house out of mud, you go, well, if I let the mud dry, go, no, no, just sloppy mud. Just keep building the house. Just keep slopping more sloppy mud on there. Surely, surely it will eventually become a house. No, as long as you're making it out of mud or chocolate pudding or whatever, you, you're never going to make something solid. But we, we think, well, if I can't do this out of the pudding, then maybe I'll, help, I'll let God help me. But you'll never be able to make it out of the pudding. Most you do is have a bigger pile of pudding. It's not going to work that way. That's a good question. I, I mean, I, like when we travel, we are always praying, thanking mm-hmm. God for our safe travels, and so we're asking for some further safe travels. But there are plenty of people out there on the road who are praying to God who has safe travels. So I'm just wondering. Two different teams go at it, and both of them say, "Dear Lord, let us win." Yeah, well, one of them's not going to get it. You're right. There are some times where we pray and God doesn't give us what we prayed for. Clearly, we can't trust God. Or maybe the prayer that we say, God has only answered our prayer if he gives us what we ask for, is maybe not the right way of looking at the concept of prayer. Or if we say there are people out there that that don't pray and they still have safe travels, surely that means we can help ourselves. Like, well, go back to... Proverbs and Ecclesiastes both arguing that, you know, the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, the sunlight on the just and the unjust. You know, stuff happens like that for everybody. Now I'm back to natural theology saying, well, yeah, God set the whole thing up that way. Which isn't deist, I'm not saying he set it up and then walked away, but that the whole thing is God's uh, oversight and God's sovereignty. I mean, you can, you can go back to saying... Um, should we should we pray to God about everything? Should I pray to God about what color socks I should wear today? Obviously not. Paul never tells us to pray without ceasing. I mean, that's ridiculous. If we were to ask God to help us in everything, I mean, should we should we stop and say, Lord, um, give me direction in how I exit my house or how I wash my hands or how I look at myself in the mirror? No, there's nothing in the in the law to suggest that you should write the Lord's name on your forehead or your hands or think about how you should wash your hands before or after you eat or think about God as you exit your doorpost in your house. I remember watching, and I, I've commented on this before, but years ago, uh, Ricky Lake, which, you know, I was homesick and I don't know why I was watching, but, but somebody was talking about their dependence on God and uh, the host was trying to make them sound ridiculous. She said, it sounds like you're completely dependent on God. And the person said, yes. She said, no, no, no. I mean, it sounds like you couldn't get through the day without God holding your hand through everything. And he said, yep, absolutely. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Oh, okay, no. It's, um, you, can't, you can't make a decision without seeking God, God's wisdom first. And the person said, well, I hope not. And I'm, I try to make sure that I'm seeking God. And every, now, you might say, yeah, but you were given God-given wisdom. We can make some of these decisions ourselves. But what was interesting was, when you ask how far do you take this, my answer is never far enough. And to the degree to which we say, well, surely I can stop at this point. Usually when we say that, we've stopped too early. Um, is it, does that mean it's, it's inherently wrong for us to make decisions ourselves? Not what I'm getting at. But the argument of, well, at what point do I no longer really need God in this equation? It's never, never a point where I no longer need God in this equation. And that becomes the why problem. Then. But the, at what point, at what point can I really do this on my own without God's help? I'm like, if I genuinely believe that in, that that all things hold together because God holds them together, 
in him all things maintain their being, then even on a natural level, I'm never doing anything without God's help. Even the broken, most sinful person is still at least existing within God's prevenient grace. What kind of, let's maybe do it the other way. What kind of wrong applications do people get from this misconception of Scripture when they think that ultimately we're being told that God helps those who help themselves? How, what do people, how do people apply this in ways that are really not healthy? Nothing. Nobody. Okay, great. Glad that everybody applies this helpfully. <laughs> I've never actually seen this. You've never heard this phrase, God helps those who have themselves? I've never applied it to Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> I had a okay. science teacher before every test we took, he would say that. God helps those who help themselves. But I think, though, he was kind of making a mockery of the people that didn't study and no. that were so I guess when I, you know, Mark said you've heard it a lot. I heard heard it a lot more in the sense of um, mockery. You can't. Yeah. That you can't expect God to swoop in and help. Okay. Anything else? It doesn't matter who I hurt on my climb to the top because I'm helping myself. So that's what God wants for me. Actually, I've heard people do that, that sort of argument before. This idea of my hard work in and of itself is more important than any leading I would get from God. Therefore, if there is a God, he likes that I did it this way. Or I've run into um, to a lot of people who are, who are using this, especially those from a Christian perspective, but not only from a Christian perspective, the idea is, is that what gets you through is your elbow grease. Prayer is great too. But it's the elbow grease that does it. Um, you know what? It, uh, if I've got cancer, I'll, sure, go ahead and pray. But what I really need is chemo and doctors. I need this kind of stuff. You know, if you want to pray for me, I, I'd appreciate that. That'd be great. It's like, really? I'm pretty sure that biblically prayer is the most important thing that I can do there. If prayer really is a thing, if you really do believe that God does heal people miraculously, wouldn't that be the best most effective way to deal with your cancer if that works out that way? If God should choose to heal you that way, wouldn't that actually be best? I'm not saying that he automatically will, and that would back to the, I can't guarantee that he will, but if he did, didn't, didn't that the best way? So when people go, let's do, let's do this, and you know what, if you want to lob a few prayers there, that wouldn't be bad. Prayer becomes, prayer becomes the icing on the cake, or the gravy on the, on the, on the potatoes, or to be honest, for most people, prayer becomes almost more like an afterthought of a, sure, it never hurts. Instead of, no, this is the best thing that we can possibly do. By the way, why don't you also go to a doctor or use some medication because that's also part of God's sovereignty. Because there's all sorts of people on the other side of the, of, the, <clears throat> of the equation that sit there and go, yes, I will not get a blood transfusion. I will not take any medications because I'm solely trusting in God. And now we're back to that joke about I sent you a Jeep, I sent you a boat, I sent you a helicopter. But yeah, there's a lot of times where the, the ultimate application of this is I don't really need God. Because if, if I don't need God, if I can do this without God's help, then I don't really need God. Right? I mean, it would be great if he'd helped. That'd be great. But I don't really need it. And therefore, any time that I would seek him in that, it would be in addition to my stuff, as opposed to my stuff being in addition to what God is doing. Or even specifically, if you want to do this right, that my stuff is what I do based on what God himself told me to do. I pray to God for healing. I pray to God for help. And then I also pray to God for leading as to how he wants me to act in this equation. And then I do that. So even the stuff that I do should be stuff that's being led by God, and thus, stuff that God has helped me in. Not necessarily God has done all the lifting himself, but he's told me how he wants me to lift, when he wants me to lift, what he wants me to lift. Oh, true or false? Yes or no? Is this biblical? You needn't worry about your reward. If money is all that you love, that's what you will receive. Sure. 
You needn't worry about your reward. If money is all that you love, that's what you'll receive. Yes, yes you have. No, it's in Star Wars when Leah is chewing out Han Solo. She said, yeah, you needn't worry about your reward. If money's all that you love, that's what you'll receive. So you have heard this, but... Yeah, okay. Obviously, a lot of people Yeah, obviously. Actually, toss this out. Somebody said, actually, yeah, that's biblical, isn't it? What does Jesus say about doing things specifically for their earthly rewards in verses like Matthew 6.5? Somebody read Matthew 6.5. Try not to hit this spider as I walk past. Matthew six five. And when you pray, Matthew six five. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, and be seen by them. I tell you the truth, they receive a reward. So what's Jesus saying about doing things for their earthly reward? That's what you'll get. So he's saying, don't do that. He's saying, well, he starts off the thing saying, don't pray like they pray. So there is an explicitness to it. But what were, gonna, what were you guys going to say? Well, don't don't do anything for the praise of men. Do it for God. Okay. What were you going to say? Oh. Because is he saying that you won't receive praise from them? No, no, you'll receive it. You want to do things to impress people? You'll impress people. Congratulations. Enjoy it. Because that's all you get, right? Which technically is what Leah's saying here. You know, it's like, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. But that's all that you'll get. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying. So that makes Star Wars biblical, right? <laughs> By the way, there's no picture that I could put here that wasn't going to offend somebody. And I looked and I saw a ton of candidates. What kind of examples can you think of in, in our modern day existence of either directly what Jesus is saying or implicitly what Jesus is saying? Of people who say, I did this spiritual thing to impress people, and I impressed people. And God says, great, you didn't impress me. I don't care at all. In fact, if anything, I'm frustrated with this amazing spiritual thing you've done. Pardon me? Okay. Let's narrow that a little bit so that we can actually apply it. Can anybody give me any examples of anything that pops into your head? Because if I say it, people will argue with me. If you say it, maybe not. If you can if you can describe the situation without giving a name. Sorry. Okay, I, I, I'm going to ask this. I'm going to ask this again. Seriously, is this something that we go? There's no actual application. I mean, generally, you're right. Let's move on. Or can we actually find a specific application? Is there any time where people today try to do something spiritual, but they're actually doing it for the people watching them, the people around them, to be impressive, and it doesn't impress God? Yeah. Okay. The scam and the whole show and the healings and stuff. It's all there just to be entertainment, not God honoring. Televangelists there to entertain and to get money from you. It's not actually God honoring. Does that impress people? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I love hearing people talk about how impressive that set is of that televangelist group. You know, oh, that is amazing. Did you see the way she was? She is so beautiful, whatever. I'm like, I'm glad she impresses you. I don't think it impresses God. Okay, that's one end of the spectrum. Anybody else want to toss something else in? Even on the... the could be even our own fault of when we, when we pray in front of people and we word it so that people understand it or we word it for the people not necessarily. Well, I mean, if we're doing a public prayer so that people can, we, and we phrase it so that people can draw close to the Lord, okay, that, that, that may be what he's talking about. It's more over if we phrase it in such a way so that people think, boy, that was eloquent. That was, that was an impressive prayer. Boy, that... Yeah, oh, that was so true. You know, that's the sort of thing where you go, yeah, that's probably applying it. Anything else? Any, like, spiritual, it can't be this, if your goal is to get praised by men instead of caring about praise God. I mean, walking into the groceries across the street could 
be that if you're only doing it to get seen by someone else. Yep. <laughs> Contrition. Can you imagine a public figure saying, I need to publicly apologize? Why? Because I got caught and I'd like to stay in office? Well, then, does that count as contrition if you did it because you want people to think better of you? Well, like, um, Armstrong had to apologize again now. Yeah. His first apologies weren't good enough, so now he's apologizing. He says, I really know what apologize is now. I didn't know it. But now I do. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So here's my question. What about when you apologize? What about when you apologize so that someone will forgive you? You don't apologize. You don't say, I'm sorry because you're sorry, which is what the words are supposed to mean. You say, I'm sorry because you want them to forgive you. You need to say, I'm sorry, because you're sorry. By the way, a separate but connected concept is, would you please forgive me? But it is not the same thing. We almost always stick those things together. I'm sorry, please forgive me, as if that's one thought. No, no. I'm sorry is, I repent. Whether you ever forgive me or not, I am genuinely sorry. By the way, I would genuinely appreciate your forgiveness. That is important from their end that they are saying, I am sorry, whether you ever forgive me or not, I genuinely repent. And it's also important from your end, whether you're ever sorry or repent or not, I forgive you. But we stick those things together so indelibly. What? Well, now we're back to the last one, aren't we? Yeah, we need that stuff from you. I mean, it's like, it's like I've got to just come before him and say, okay, you know what, I've got, like, thank you for the little seed of the good desire in me. Please wash me clean of all the mixed motives. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yes or no? Leopard can't change his spots. Or a leopard? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I you need to leave the room. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, Yes, it's absolutely in the Bible. Well, ish. It's the statement form of the question posed in Jeremiah 13. If you ask yourself, why has this happened to me? Why is bad stuff happening? It's because of your many sins that your skirts have been torn off, your body mistreated. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the desert wind. Yes. The leopard cha can't change his spots is a biblical concept. So what does that get? I wonder if they're taking it out of context. Like, Depending on what you want. I, I'm not entirely certain, though. Because, okay, what's going on? Neither the, the Ethiopian nor the leopard is doing anything wrong here, right? They're just being what they are, and demonstrably what they are. Ethiopians, especially at this time, were about the darkest-skinned people that anybody in Judea would have come across. So they're like, from a distance, you can see this. Is, this person is not a Jew. Uh, so they're like, okay, they're, they're not doing anything bad. They're just clearly what they are, and they're not going to be able to change. So help me out. What's the spiritual application or applications that you see from this? What is the point that's being made here? Okay, well, or maybe back up. What's the point that people are making about a leopard can't change his spots? If that's your personality, if that's your personality, you're Yeah, if you're a con man yesterday, you're going to be a con man today. I'm not going to expect to change, okay? What's the point being made here in Jeremiah? Same. Kind of the same, isn't it? Yeah. Pardon me? These people are bad. You're bad. And you're going, why is bad stuff happening? It's like, well... What do you think? Because you're rotten. And I, you shouldn't expect that, it, that, that suddenly you're going to start being good. You, you're accustomed to doing evil. Why would you? Nothing else changes. Why are you going to suddenly go, well, I'm going to be a good guy now? No. Well, why, why isn't God showing great mercy? I'm pretty sure God has been showing mercy for generations there. Why, why, is, he, why is he doing this? He's like, because you were evil yesterday. You're fine with being evil today, be evil tomorrow unless things change. 
So yeah, this is what's going on. Yeah. It doesn't actually say it in that text specifically, but the blood will carry over again that the only way any of us can change is God. Interesting. What's the argument that, that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount? People say, you've heard it said this, but I say, you've heard it said this, but I say. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be perfect. Even as your heavenly father is perfect, right? Okay, let's all pray and go to lunch. To which the disciples are like, how can anybody be saved, right? Isn't that their takeaway? Nobody can be saved. Everybody's so messed up, there's nothing we can do. What is the nature of the gospel? Is it that Jesus comes along and fills in the gaps of that few thing that you couldn't do? You're pretty, you're pretty good. You, you pretty much got yourself most of the way there, but Jesus comes and helps you that little, last little nudge. What is the nature of the gospel? It's the nature of God's grace. <laughs> and now we're cross the line. That God helps those who absolutely cannot help themselves. That you sit there and you go, you're, you're not going to be able to save yourself. You're, your righteousness is like filthy rags. You were a leopard yesterday, you're a leopard today, and you're a leopard tomorrow. Can you make yourself not a leopard? No. You're an Ethiopian yesterday, you're an Ethiopian today, you're an Ethiopian tomorrow. Can you make yourself not an Ethiopian? No. You were a sinner yesterday, lost in your sins. You're a sinner today, lost in your sins. You'll be a sinner tomorrow, lost in your sins. Can you make yourself not that? But the only way that we can understand that, the only way that we can understand what it means that we're told that we're made into a new creation, that we're given the opportunity to be born again as something new, that we are made joint heirs with Christ, any of those things that we appreciate in the, in the New Testament we really have to understand the concept of, you know what, on my own, I can't change. I am what I am, I was yesterday, and I will be tomorrow. There is something to be said outside of made-for-TV movies and things. There is, there is something to be said for saying, if you were a thief and a con man yesterday, I don't care if you met a really nice nun or a cute kid, you're pretty much going to be a thief and a con man tomorrow. You don't just change because, well, okay, I'm not going to do that. Right? Ask Scott Jeffries if he's an addict. And he'd say, yep, I'm absolutely an addict. By the way, I no longer use cocaine. But I'm absolutely an addict. That doesn't change. But who I am inside has changed because God has changed me. We can't make ourselves something other than what we are. Can you change some of your behaviors? Sure, but you can't change who you are. Only God can do that. Really, at our core, only God can do that. So, yeah. So, in that respect, Nikki, I would say, yeah, I, 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 think, I think people do take this out of context and say there is no way that anybody will ever change because they don't bring God into the equation. But when they say, I don't expect anybody to change, you go, well, that's pretty, is pretty much what that is getting at in Jeremiah. Is that, no, you're pretty much tomorrow what you were today. And if you try real hard, you might change it for a day, but at your core, you're what you were, and you'll probably slide back into that. Yes or no? Is this biblical? The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Pardon me? Uh, uh, surrounded and besieged. The quote continues, Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak. But it isn't. It's actually a quote from the 1994 movie Pulp Fiction <laughs> where he quotes Ezekiel. He says, it's a quote from Ezekiel 25:17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of the darkness, 
for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. Very stirring conglomeration of devilish sounding things. That's Ezekiel 25, 17. People take this really seriously. I'm amazed at how many tattoos I found of Ezekiel 25.17 when that's not what Ezekiel 25.17 says. And it says good stuff! It's still pretty intense. Ezekiel 25.17 says, I will carry out great vengeance on them and punish them. And you go, well, there's the great vengeance. I see where that came from. And punish them in my wrath. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I take vengeance on them. There's, there's a little bit of that in, in Ezekiel 25.17. Could you make want to get that tattoo removed because that's not what Ezekiel 25.17 says over there. But people take this really seriously. By the way, this is why in the Marvel movies with Samuel Jackson's character in the Marvel movies they actually have a quote on his tombstone the path of the righteous man from Ezekiel 25.17. Yeah, it's a nice little in-joke and things. Is this even important enough to work? Because, I mean, None of you thought that that was actually from the Bible. Why do people think that's actually from the Bible? They say it's from the Bible. <laughs> they say it's from the Bible in the movie. Doesn't it sound biblical? It sounds biblical-ish. And this is the thing that throws people. Shepherd the weak and valley of darkness and uh, lost children and... I don't know. There was stuff in there that sounded biblical, didn't it? Uh, but... Uh, Oh, Brother's Keeper, that's that's in there. And then he's got enough stuff from the actual Ezekiel that sounds like it. So, <laughs> why is this even important enough to bring up? You guys didn't think it was biblical. Because all guys I believe in Rivers think it's biblical because he said it was there. He said it was there, I don't need to look it up. Do we ever say things here in the Bible that we don't need to look up because we know it's there? You ever sure that that's what it is? I got it mostly right. Plus, there's a lot of biblical-ish sounding things in there. Hopefully, you have enough on the ball that you go, when I hear a gazillion biblical-ish things from smattering of New Testament, Testament all stuck into one verse, apparently, I should find myself going, uh, probably not. You know, it's, it's probably not from Scripture that all those things are in one verse. But an amazing number of people sit there and go, yeah, sure, of course it is, maybe it is, whatever. I don't know my Bible. So all I really care about is if it sounds biblical. All I care about is if it includes a bunch of biblical things. What is the basic... Okay, go ahead. Peanuts usually gets it right. Oh, Peanuts usually gets it right. In fact, I have a whole book... A whole book? I have a whole book on my shelf called The Gospel According to Peanuts. Uh, looking, at, uh, looking at scripture from a peanuts angle. Charlie Brown, man. Um... What's the basic mentality of this? What's the basic mentality of scripture that people people say, yeah, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to live by this. I'm going to tattoo it. I'm never actually going to crack open the Bible to double check it. But I will have this literally carved into my flesh so that I live by it. What's the basic take and scripture with this? It forces their own views. Yeah. Their own desires. I will, yeah. Yeah, I like this verse. So this one, I'll, I have a biblical backing for what I like, because this already reinforces what I already like. What else? Well, it takes power. It takes uh, God's, what God's talking to you, also puts it in person's mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's giving people power. What else? Yeah, as long as it's moving, and I don't know how this all goes together, which makes it more biblical, because I don't understand how it all goes together, and so that's like, you know, so deep that you can't even almost understand it, and that's how you know it's deep. So yeah, it's, but it's, it's, it feels powerful, therefore it is. Oh, he's down a little bit more. Dude, could you go up? I don't want to hit you. 
no staples to <laughs> driver's license. Um, but what's anything else about people's perspective on scripture and what scripture is? Oh, I like spiders. I want the spider. He eats the other bugs, but don't. Maybe after class. Anyway. If the Bible is supposed to be our way to understand who God is, how to have a relationship with him, but we're satisfied with finding something on the internet or from a movie. We run into this in youth when someone brought a Bible verse in that wasn't in the Bible, actually. Strangely. Um, and so they had a meme. spending time on what God's saying or just whatever you come across. Yeah. Is the Bible just a collection of interesting aphorisms? And if that isn't in the Bible, I, it, it, by golly, it should be, so it might as well be. So, yeah. it does. It's not like this is the living word of God that I should base things on. It's basically just stuff I like. Is the Bible just another collection of names you can Google? Mm -hmm. It takes the sacredness and the set apartness because you don't see it as sacred. You see it as, like I said, Bunch of wisdom. It might as well be Poor Richard's Almanac, or Aesop's Fables, or the writings of Socrates, <coughs> or Confucius, or whatever. It's just, it means something to you, and so that part of it you'll take. You Google that little bit. Instead of saying, I want to understand what scripture is actually saying, and live by that. Oh well. Yes or no? Money is the root of all evil. Yeah, I gotta say no, ish, because it is word for word out of scripture, right? Actually, it is. It's a direct quote, but it's it's taken out of context. Well, well, it, it, this is a direct quote from King James. So I mean, it's which makes it correct according to the Gesundheit. But the full citation here, and yes, this is one where there are times where King James is the best one, and there are other times where it's not. This is one where there's some there's some some stuff here that is important. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul says, "People who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction." Gesundheit. For the love. Of for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And that all kinds is a crucial part coming in here from, from the original. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So, let me add, uh, so let me add, really? You're even lower? So, what is this actually getting at? Is it that money is the root of all evil or something else? Well, it's your heart, money. Money is something we can use to transact, but if you love it and love God, then you're in control. It's not for everything. All kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, in, in the Vulgate, it talks about cupidity, you know, which is greed, this love for money here. We talked about this before. Epictetus said, People aren't afraid of things, they're afraid of their ideas about things, right? You're not afraid of a bear, you're afraid of what that bear is going to do to you. You're not afraid of falling to your death, you're afraid of the concept of what happens when you fall to your death. You're not afraid of heights, you're afraid of what you think is going to happen if you're up high. In the same way, physical wealth isn't sinful, but greed for wealth is. It's not the money itself that's the problem, it's that greed for it. It's, that, it's all the thoughts that you have about that, which makes this, at its core, a heart issue. So the idea is, if you are lustful after money, if you are totally focused on, on the money, if that is what your, your drive is in life, is how do I... And, and you can even mask it by saying, I'm just trying to be a good steward or something. You go, right, but if everything you're doing is focused on the money part, that's going to be messing with you. How is that the root of all kinds of evil? It's just the root of greed, isn't it? Uh, well, for greed, you may cheat, you may steal, you may murder. There's all kinds of evil. Yep. 
So that whole focus on money or that general dissatisfaction with your present state leading for a lust to change that present state, that inspires all kinds of different sins, right? It's not just you get greedy. It's you, you, you undermine everything that God is trying to work in you in terms of your trust in God, in terms of your relationship with your fellow man. There's all sorts of different things that come from this. Now, could you theoretically take this value-neutral variable out and stick something else in? Is there anything else that you could say the love of something else is also the root of all kinds of people? Love of power, love of self. Mm-hmm. Which, again, power isn't inherently evil. Self, the fact that you are a human being beloved by God, that doesn't mean that, you're, that caring about your own well-being is necessarily inherently evil. But this this focus on that, this lust for that, this greed for that, greed for power, greed for um, affirmation, greed for money, greed for sexual satisfaction, greed for any time you say, I am going to throw myself, I, I make this, I, this thing, this temporary thing, this huge priority in my life, yeah, it's going to get your other priorities out of whack, isn't it? How much, this is not one to answer out loud, but how much of your life, at various points in your life, has been around greed for comfort, greed for security, greed for making this pain go away, greed for making this fear go away, greed for money, greed for abilities that other people have that you don't, greed for, I don't know, um, affirmation, recognition. How many different times in your life are you like, you know, technically, because I was so demanding that I get this temporal fix, I think I have actually sinned against my brother or sinned against my sister or sinned against my Lord because I made this my priority instead of trusting in God. I don't know, if you're anything like me, yeah, there, there, there are things where I'm like, no, I... I made something that is so temporal and something so material, not even necessarily inherently evil, though there's plenty of things I've done of that, but even just things that are mundanely temporal. And I've made my my love for acquisition of that thing or holding on to that thing or maintaining that thing the priority in a situation where I should have made honoring God that priority. It ain't the money's fault. So yeah, how do how do people oversimplify this, and how does that actually how do, how do people apply this, misapply this, if they think that money is the root of all evil? Scripture. What does Jesus say? You can't serve God and mammon. Mammon being money. You can't serve two masters. You can't. You got to pick one. How does that apply here? Well, do you mean how do we see that play out still today? Well, how does how does Jesus' statement that you can't uh, you can't serve both God and money? apply here where Paul says that uh, money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The money, the money thing, you can't serve anything. You can't serve God. So, yeah, I think both of them would be saying, one application is that both of them would be saying ultimately you're making money, or the acquisition of money, or the love of money, or the greed for more money, or the greed for more. Put a period there. 
the God of your life. That is becoming the thing. Some people do that with comfort or peace or making pain go away. That becomes the overriding principle of their life. But let's go back to the, to the question, how do other people misapply this? Part of it is that people say, if somebody is wealthy, then inherently they must be evil. That's right. You have to take a vow of poverty because you have to be poor, and if you're not poor, then you're not decent. If you made money this year, you must be bad. Yeah. Especially if they have more than Yeah, they have more than I do. Now, if, if, if you are, how can, how can Christians ignore this by making lots of money? Are there times where we are hypocrites by, by this? I'm trying to be careful not to give specific examples, but I suppose you know, if you're making millions and millions and millions of dollars, you have multiple houses and multiple different things, and you're keeping it pretty much for yourself. It's like, maybe as a pastor, you're not doing this quite right. Well, there's the example of the wealthy. There's a lot. There's the example of them going to church and wealthy man who came to Jesus and he told him to go sell everything yep. and <coughs> do it, and that's why he was sad because he never gave all of that up. And so it was the money that was his problem, right? Well, no, it's his desire to have there you the go. money. Well, and, you, and not only can you sit there and say that um, that people will automatically think money must be bad. Christians might say that. Non-Christians might look at Christians and say you're hypocrites because money is inherently bad. But then, if we say money is the root of all evil, well, as long as I'm not focused on money, then I'm not being evil, right? We love to truncate things so that we can box it away in a, in a comfortable little box. I have no great love for money. I am amazingly poverty-stricken for Jesus. I am phenomenally humble. I mean, look at me. I've taken vows of poverty. I go help the poor every day. I, I, I'm working in the slums of pure Calcutta. You know, trying to, I don't know, I'm trying to work with lepers every place I can. That's, that's me being righteous. Could that actually still be an application of what Paul is getting at? How so? You're still focusing on something temporal and saying, I'm putting all my eggs into this basket and obsessing over this. It's not a direct application, but it's a basic, basic application of the same principle of like any time that you are saying this, this, desire this greed, this lust for something in this place that makes me feel like this. That <coughs> is keeping me from actually honoring God in a meaningful way. Yeah. I mean, and there's the camel and the needle's eye thing. There's the blessed for the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we observe this generally speaking, mm-hmm. that the, those who are poor tend to be more humble. And being humble means that you tend to be more receptive of what God has to say and uh, able to be generous with other people with what little you have. Um, and I've seen that when I've been to different places around the world. But at the same time, I've been homeless to people or people who are really mean-spirited. And it's like, it's, it's points to a tendency, but it's really what's in your heart. Well, and, and, and there's a clear reasons why why this particular analogy is being used. It's like, you know, people desiring to be wealthy want to be self-sufficient. People desiring to be wealthy turn away from God. People desiring to be wealthy... Well, an amazing number of people, when they're poor and young, they can go, yeah, wow, this is great. I can, I can go off to Germany in the, in the spring. I can, I can drop things and go do this. Yeah, I can, I can go out by the soup kitchen. I can go do this. I have no problem letting a homeless person stay in my living room. This is great. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Okay, 20 years down the line, when you've worked hard to have financial stability for your young children and family, all of a sudden you're like, homeless person in the same house with my children? I, 
don't know them. Like, I've got to protect my kids. I can't do. I can't just drop everything and go to Germany for two weeks. I can't. I can't. I can't just drop this and do. I, there's some stability here that I've worked hard to make. It's not just that middle-aged people are inflexible. It's that the more you have, and not just money, but the more you have in general, the more you go. I've got stuff to lose. If you've got three pennies and somebody takes two of them, you go. Oh, I had three, and uh, it's going to make things difficult, but at the same time, I wasn't planning to buy a car with my three cents anyway. If you've got only $30,000 and somebody takes 20000 of it, all of a sudden you go, that's a lot. That's a lot. I can do stuff with 30000 I can't do it with 10000 So there is something we said for a biblical argument for, no, no, money. Money is something that people invest a lot in because money means ability to do stuff and to create stability. And you don't, I don't think you have to have money to fall victim to this at all. Because, I mean, you're talking about, like, there's some people out there that don't have that money that are still being spirited or people that steal millions of dollars. It's still, you can still fall to that idolatry when you don't have money, even almost sometimes more so. It's like, oh, if I can only just get that money, then all the things I can do. So it's not just money, but I think there is an argument in Scripture that money can be one of the weirder things that we can fall into. I mean, this is like this vague recollection of the back of my mind. It may not be true, but isn't there a pertinent argument that there are more verses that the Bible discuss money than anything else? I've heard that. I've never actually chased it down, but I wouldn't be surprised. Well, the funny thing is, is that the Bible is forever talking about money, sex, and politics. And Christians never talk about money, sex, or politics because we don't want to offend anybody or talk about anything inappropriate. So we talk about, you know, hugging one another. And it's like, well, that's great. It's also money, sex, and politics in Scripture. It, it sure can be. Well, I mean, it's, it's not immediately political, but I mean, in terms of, of politics, in terms of like, what do we spend our money as a nation on, etc.? Absolutely. Absolutely. But even within socialism, there's always something. Um, it's a great line at the end of uh, Enemy at the Gates. Yeah. Enemy the Gates, where, where the, 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 the communist political officer is talking to somebody saying, we thought we'd create this society where, where we shared everything. But there's always something to cover. There's always an ability that you have that I don't. A love of a human being that you have that I don't. There's always something that I can want that you have. So whether it's specifically the dollar bill in your pocket or the fact that I think your spouse is cute, whatever the case, there's always something that I can covet that I don't have. But yes, I think there's multiple things in Scripture to suggest that money is uniquely prone to have us do that because the whole point of it is that it's money represents service, time, power, ability, goods, resources, etc. It's it's a representation of all the stuff that in this world we can abuse. Money? I don't know. That's a good question. No, that's a good question. All right. Well, let's 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 end there. Uh, how would you summarize just what we've talked about the last two weeks? How would you summarize why we're even having this discussion? What? Why is it important to try to figure out which things are biblical and which things aren't? Why do so many things? Why do people assume so many things are biblical that just aren't? Okay, why is that a problem? Why? I agree. Why? Isn't it enough just to do something good? Well, that goes to your picture of who God is, who you think you are, in light of who God is, and how you want that. I want people making stinky faces, so I want to make sure that they have a chance to answer.
it's still, even if something, if you get something from Paul Richards Almanac or from a meme online, if it's, if it's true, it's true. If it's a good thing, it's a good thing, right? Should hold Okay, so there's this absolute truth, or what Donna's getting at in terms of the power from Christ Himself. What were you going to say, Michael? Same thing. We need to be Bereans, searching the scriptures to find out whether what other people say is true. Because people say a lot of things, and including pastors, and um, a lot of times to make things memorable, they turn it into a catchy rhyming phrase or alliterated list or something like that, and that can be helpful for memory, but if it turns in any way what the scripture really says, <coughs> we might get it wrong. Mm -hmm. Or I remember being at a retreat one time and a pastor gave a, a wonderful story to start a, a message, and I talked to them afterwards, I said, I'm actually familiar with that, that's that's not true, that didn't actually happen because of such and such. I know, that's a great story. Ah, it bothers me. And even that isn't necessarily about scripture. So you come back to if you are putting your confidence in something, are you are you saying, I in my mindset think this is a good idea? Or are you, as as we're trying to link here, putting your confidence in an absolute truth that is immutable? Oftentimes morphed or mangled by other people, but are you are you putting your confidence in something that is true, capital T true? Not just something that you feel like is true, but something that is truth from God. Not just something that you like, but you should go, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't just trust what I like, because all my righteousness is but filthy rags. I, I need God's help in all of this. I need to make sure that I'm stapling myself to, to, to the capital T truth that doesn't change. Let's close with that and pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word that doesn't change. Forgive us for all the times that we we mangle it, even good-naturedly, trying to understand that we mangle it. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to, to genuinely desire not just to be good people, because we can't make ourselves good people, but I pray that you help us to desire to be changed people and to live that out every day. Help us to be changed by the truth of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.